Why would some contend that the trial and the verdict constituted a second Dreyfus? Well, you know, there were many parallels to the Dreyfus uh, case and maybe Mendel Belli's too. The, it was a time of real anxiety uh, throughout the world about changing mores and modes of manufacture. And um, in France, there was the worry about uh, the loss in the Prussian War. And uh, in America, there was the worry, at least in the American South, the worry about the loss of the Civil War and Jews being publicly America was seen as the great exception in terms of anti-Semitism. There, there was no anti-Semitism, uh, or so people thought. And so this was a case like the uh, Dreyfus case that brought to the fore the kind of anti-Semitic hostility that a lot of people felt just didn't exist in the world anymore. It was, it was too primeval, but the the anti-Semitism of the early 20th century reminded us all that uh, there was a steady state of anti-Semitic feeling in the world, and it all it took was the right chain of events to kindle anti-Semitic hostility. And, you know, there was a big debate about the Frank trial, the, was it anti-Semitic or not? Uh, I think there was implicit anti-Semitism in the Frank trial, and there was real hostility between Frank's lawyers and uh, Frank's family and the prosecutor. But whether there was overt anti-Semitism in the trial, I think largely not. It was at the end of the trial that Frank's defense lawyer, Reuben Arnold, introduced the idea of anti-Semitism and said, you know, had Leo Frank not been Jewish, he would not have been prosecuted for this crime. So that brought this um, undercurrent into the open. But it was not until after the conviction of Leo Frank that the Frank case truly tapped into and ignited terrible anti-Semitism. You know, during, during the trial, it was just a very ugly, contained clash based on class with some religious and racial implications. After the trial, everything blew up and uh, every kind of ugliness entered. Let's get to that, but let's just complete the story. Um, So Frank is convicted, sentenced murder, but that sentence commuted by the governor. And now what happens next? There's a quote-unquote mob that breaks into the prison, and what happens? Well, the lynching of Leo Frank is really one of the most fascinating and horrible crimes in American history. And I'll step back just a bit. Frank was convicted in August of 1913. He was lynched in August of 1915, two years later. So it took two years for all the appeals courts to weigh in as this case eventually got to the United States Supreme Court. And there were many legal backs and forths, and um, Frank lost at every turn. 
simultaneously in the court of public opinion, the case took on a big life as Atlanta's main Jewish rabbi uh, at the temple, which was the Reformed Jewish congregation in Atlanta, went to New York and enlisted the help of some powerful um, leading Jews, Adolf Ox, the editor and publisher of the New York Times, um, and mostly Adolf Ox, and Louis Marshall of the American Jewish Committee to a little less degree, and Albert Lasker, the Chicago advertising genius. And these three men eventually came to Frank's aid in different ways. And the New York Times most prominently turned the Frank case into a nationwide call celeb. There were front page news stories about Frank every day beginning in 1914. And Ox was particularly attracted, if that's the right word to this, because Ox was a Southern Jew. Ox had grown up in Knoxville, Tennessee, and got his start in journalism as the editor of the Chattanooga Times and used the money he was making there to buy the New York Times. So he thought he understood Southern psychology and that if he could only acquaint his fellow Southerners with the facts in this case, they would come to their senses and realize at the very least, Frank did not get a fair trial and that the case against him was weak. Well, au contraire, only 50 years after the end of the Civil War, for the North's biggest and most successful newspaper to begin publishing articles about this case every day and editorializing in Frank's favor every couple of weeks, provoked a backlash in Georgia. And it seemed as if the Northern newspapers and uh, Northern advertising agencies and lawyers were attempting to meddle with Southern justice. And those hostilities and uh, grievances found their voice in a populist publisher and politician named Tom Watson, who had been a United States congressman and had a small weekly paper in Georgia called the Jeffersonian. You might think in contemporary terms that the Jeffersonian was a blog, and the Jeffersonian was a blog that once it got hold of something, wouldn't let go. And in the course of the two years in which the Frank case became a call celeb, the Jeffersonian's circulation tripled, and people would meet incoming trains in small communities around the South buying up every single copy as soon as the train brought in the new issues each week. And Watson was a ferocious and skilled lawyer himself and a uh, polemicist, and he brought all of his verbal skills to bear and introduced true anti-Semitism into the story. And Watson would have said he was not an anti-Semite, uh, he, at least in this instance, was an anti-Semite. He always refused, referred to Leo Frank as the lecherous Jew. He almost never used his name. He delved into ideas about um, Jewish sexuality and the predation of um, educated Jews visited upon working class girls. He teased all these anxieties that are... Uh, you know, out of anti-Semitism 101 in Europe, but had never really uh, been played in the United States this way. And within months, uh, people in Georgia saw Frank not only as a murderer, but a monster. And the 
um, New York newspapers entered into a back and forth with Tom Watson's Jeffersonian. And week after week, day after day, these forces were fighting and the polarization just built up and you couldn't have any kind of reasonable conversation about Frank's guilt or innocence. The issue itself was a argument and a brutal one at that. So the, the reason took a backseat to passion and uh, Leo Frank was ultimately consumed by this. The lynching, um, we're now two years later, uh, two fascinating years in which um, court after court failed against Frank and the governor of Georgia, John Slayton, commuted Frank's death sentence at the 11th hour, which in itself was an issue in Georgia because John Slayton's law partner, a guy named Luther Rosser, had been one of Leo Frank's lawyers. So Slayton had a conflict of interest, but the Georgia bar was small in those days and Slayton believed he'd made a decision of conscience. Frank was transferred from the county prison in Atlanta down to the state prison in Milledgeville, Georgia, in the heart of Georgia. And after a couple of months there, a very daring raid was planned and then mailed to abduct Frank from the state prison, drive him back over 125, 130 miles of unpaved road in the dead of night uh, by a circuitous route to Marietta, Georgia in Cobb County, Mary Fagan's hometown, and lynch him there at dawn the next day. Now, to modern listeners, that might not sound like much of a mission of daring do, but it was extremely difficult to abduct the most celebrated prisoner in America from a state prison with armed guards and guard towers everywhere. And then in Model T's and cars with old uh, gas lit headlamps, not even electrical lights, and tires that blew out uh, whenever they hit a rock to get a prisoner through the dead of night back to Atlanta, essentially the next day in Lynchham, was a feat of great ambitiousness. And uh, they pulled it off and they hanged Leo Frank at dawn on uh, August 17th, 1915, just outside Marietta at a cotton gin, Fry's gin. And there was an oak tree there. And um, believe it or not, uh, when the lynch party got to this grove by the gin, there was a table waiting. They had traveled down to Milledgeville with a rope that had already been tied into a noose, and they hanged Frank there that morning. And the site is now buried uh, underneath Interstate 75 as it runs up from Atlanta to uh, Chattanooga. But uh, it's, you know, it was it was quite a feat and was immediately front page news uh newsreel cameras were there it was a it was a media event of the magnitude of anything that happened in the oj simpson case it was a it was a national phenomenon and to some degree an international phenomenon what was the response uh before the lynching and after the lynching of atlanta's jewish community and did it shake their belief in their ability to integrate into Southern society? 
Yes, it shook their belief and it shook it hard. And the response, while some Jews would leave the city permanently or at least for that summer, most stayed and most conceived of themselves as Southerners and Jews. This was their home. But the way they reacted was by repressing what had occurred and becoming in some way self-denying and self-abnegating. And the rabbi at the temple, um, he forbade the use of the chuppah at weddings. And, you know, he didn't want to do anything that called attention to his congregation's Jewishness. Uh, They became sort of Presbyterian Jews. They were very um, quiet in their ritual. The Jewish community had a private meeting a couple of weeks after the lynching, several hundred Jews gathered and took a vote. Should they hire private detectives? Should they agitate for some sort of outside investigation? And they voted not to. And the fear was that uh, had they pursued justice in any aggressive way, there would have been another murder. There would have been something else. This, this was on the verge. It was already out of control. And, and, you know, terrorism is a symbolic act always and a form of theater. And when Leo Frank was lynched so publicly, so viciously, that was not just an execution of Leo Frank. That was a signal to anyone who supported him, whether they be Jew or Gentile, that there was a quiet, ugly, secret force out there ready to take action if people didn't let this go. And by and large, Southern Jews let it go. And even when I began working on my book, the older Atlanta Jews I talked to were loath to speak of this. It was uh, not something they wanted to revisit. And you know, in the intervening years, uh, long before I worked on my book, because it's such a fascinating story, reporters or writers would show up in Atlanta wanting to take a look at this in the 1920s or the 1940s, and they would be discouraged from doing so. And, you know, when I was working on my book, the people in Marietta, whose family members had been part of the lynch party or had helped arrange the lynch party, the they were far more open to discussion than Atlanta's Jews were. Was there an investigation uh, and did anything result in the investigation of the lynchers? There was a pro forma uh, coroner's inquest and grand jury inquest, but they were run by people who had helped plan the lynching. So these were events that were staged in a different way. They were staged to make sure that nothing was ever developed in terms of real evidence. They were part of a cover-up. Usually my eyes glaze over when I hear someone talking about a conspiracy, but this lynching was a conspiracy. And there were seven or eight very powerful people from Marietta who planned it. And then they had allies in the state legislature who were able to leverage their power over the warden and the guards at the prison and get them to stand aside. So they exerted themselves to pull this off. And then they exerted themselves to make sure that nothing was ever uh, done about it. And there were no federal laws, no federal civil rights laws in that time. So 
once an investigation would clear a grand jury, the, the perpetrators of a crime, if there had been a crime, were free. They, they fe- had no more threats. So the only um, form of justice that anyone involved in the Leo Frank lynching dealt with was the accusations of their own consciences. And some of them did have doubts and terror, uh, but in terms of any legalistic ram- ramifications, there were none. They, they were, they were, it was a perfect crime. Where, where would you place this event within the context of American Jewish history? Um, perhaps even looking forward uh, as, as an aftermath following this event, you have Henry Ford, you have Messina blood libel and Messina in New York. Where would you place um, the Leo Frank case in that context? It's a warning. I mean, the, the, the debate is, is it anomalous or is it indicative? And many American Jews argue that on both sides. And many Americans, regardless of their religion, argue that on both sides. Obviously, it was anomalous. You didn't see this happening every day, every decade. But it was so frightening and so uh, potent an event that I think it does signal that there is a um, bedrock level of anti-Semitism, even in America, that uh, we ignore at our risk. And in fact, just um, a couple of weeks ago in Los Angeles, where I live, um, some proud boy types rode a um, truck through Beverly Hills with anti-Semitic slogans, including uh, written on the side of the truck, uh, Leo Frank murdered Mary Fagan. Hard to believe that this would still be alive in anyone's imagination more than a hundred years after the fact, but it was uh, on that day here. But, you know, other than the Pittsburgh tree of life, shootings and the San Diego synagogue shootings. Well, I'm I'm about to defeat my own point. I I think it's there. I I don't think you can ignore it. Why does the case, Leo Frank case, still reverberate today? Obviously, you wrote a book about an event that happened so long ago, and it was a great success. And thank you. There have been TV programs on it and documentaries on it. Um, why? Why does it reverberate today? I think in part it reverberates because it is so outlandishly dramatic that on Confederate Memorial Day, this symbolic holiday about a defeated nation, the American South, you would have a crime that would bring the conflict between modernity and the past so vividly into relief. And at the same time, point on that same emotionally charged Confederate Memorial Day, that was the finale of the New York Metropolitan Opera's annual season in Atlanta, and Caruso was singing, and um, you had a real sense of Atlanta joining the world of modernity, and this was a backlash against that, and I think the 
polarities of the case are so strong and they are really familiar to what's happening in America today. The um, day that Governor Slayton commuted Leo Frank's death sentence, um, Atlanta awakened uh, to the news that the sentence had been commuted and within hours, a mob had overrun uh, the state capitol, had poured into the well of the state legislature and taken over the podium and giving speeches. And later that same day, another mob of some 5,000 people marched out Peachtree Street, uh, the main drag in Atlanta, from downtown to Buckhead, where the governor lived, with the intention of killing him. And uh, because they were on foot, the governor had enough time to call out the National Guard, and they threw up a perimeter around the around the mansion, and he was saved. But the the just the sense of how quickly things can get out of hand, uh, I think that is all foreshadowed in the Leo Frank case, uh, and we see it again today. That uh, we take a lot of things for granted about security and civility and civilization, well, maybe we shouldn't take them for granted. Uh, They can be undermined a little more quickly than we might imagine. That's one reason. Uh, Another reason, the cases, like most cases at last, have a lot of ambiguity. And when I say cases, the Frank case is two cases. One is the murder of Mary Fagan, and the other is the lynching of Leo Frank. And what do we know and what do we not know? Um, both um, are open to constant investigation. And um, in fact, I just saw a documentary film last night that's coming out later this year that has some fascinating stuff about what happened to Frank's accuser, Jim Conley, who pretty much disappeared from the world in later years. Well, this film has footage of a graveyard outside of Atlanta where he may indeed have been buried. Uh, so it ties his story up in a way that I hadn't been able to do myself and no one had been able to do. So there are little elements of it that uh, just remain fascinating. It was a like O.J. or like the Lindbergh case, there were so many characters who had walk-on parts, and they were fascinating. It's it's also about the press, the power of the press. Uh, Atlanta had a Hearst newspaper that exacerbated the hostility and the drama, and then the New York Times and the um, respectable press got into this and exacerbated it in a different kind of way. And then the tabloid press, which would have been the Jeffersonian, the blogs, the would be Breitbart News today, uh, they got into it in an entirely different way. So you had consensus fracturing, and I always think that's another very dangerous thing that happens. We, we need some degree of agreed upon facts in order to operate in a civilized world. And in the Frank case, the facts, not, nothing was agreed upon. Everything was contested. And uh, I mean, you basically spelled it out, but why particularly do you think, as you go around and speak, why particularly should young people today study the Leo Frank case and the Well, it's not the feel-good movie of the summer, and I would rather not know as much about it as I do, but I think for some of the reasons I just said, we can't sleepwalk through 
life. We need to take an interest in the courts and government. We need to be engaged. And if we're not engaged, things can get out of hand more quickly than we might imagine. And when they get out of hand, bad things happen. And, you know, I don't know whether we could have something exactly like the Leo Frank case today. And if we did, what ethnicities would be involved, what religions, it might break in a different manner than the Frank case did. But the the Frank case is a classic, it's anti-Semitism classic. It is, you know, all the elements of sex, wealth, education, industrialization, modernity, going up against poverty, agrarian ideas, terroir, uh, the notion of the land. Uh, Mary Fagan was very much a woman of the land, a girl of the land, a southern flower, as they would have said then. And Leo Frank was seen as this rapacious machine moving through this virginal world of young women. And um, those kinds of images, which, um, you know, if you look at modern art of the early 20th century, it's full of artists trying to come to terms with them. We're not done with that. We are not. And and in many ways, they're even more complicated and uh, the riptides are more dangerous now that we have the web and different kinds of social media. There there can be alternative realities that become very dangerous. So I think that's why you should study the Frank case because it's all there out in the open and and you can see it and you you can comprehend it and uh, I, of course, would say that I spent 15 years working on a book about it, but I, I find it pretty fascinating. And, and uh, again, um, we could go on and on. It, it truly is an incredibly fascinating account. Uh, it's extremely detailed. It takes you through the personalities, the players, the trial, the transcripts. So um, we urge again all our listeners and viewers to um, go online and um, take a look um, at the book and the dead shall rise. And again, uh, Mr. Oney, thank you so, so much. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. Ari, the pleasure is mine. Thank you so much. And just wonderful talking to you. And you're right. I think that if the two of us were uh, having another cup of coffee, we would, and it'd be several hours before we finished. (laughs)